1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the Bee Babette talks about native bees. But first up, here's the news about computers made from human cells. (music) Computing. A synthetic biology team at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH and the University of Baal in Zurich have engineered a system of nine human cells that use biochemical logic that could diagnose a range of diseases. Back in 2012, the team engineered a system of two human kidney cells. One cell could do addition and the other cell could do subtraction. The presence or absence of each of two chemicals would switch on a reaction inside the cell that would make it glow different colours to let you read the result. The principle could be used to make a patch of skin glow in the presence of certain chemicals to indicate disease, but the logic is a little simple for what's usually a more complex situation. They needed to be able to read more than one input. The team used human embryonic kidney cells as a base. The cells would light up using a glowing protein made by genes from a crustacean called Gaussia princeps. Each of the nine cells in the new system are genetically programmed to respond to three different trigger compounds and coordinate their activities by releasing chemicals like histamine that pass from one cell to the other. The system can act as a programmable full adder computer module using the synthetic biology equivalents of the AND, NOT, and OR logic gates. Of electronic digital computing. A full adder can take three inputs and add them together to give you the sum and a carry which allows you to do the basic arithmetic required for digital computation. Together they form a fully programmable multicellular circuit that can respond to multiple inputs. The team suggests that in the future a version of the system implanted in your body could respond to a rise in calcium the drop in a hormone, and an increase in a cancer biomarker that all together would signal the presence of a specific type of cancer. The team wants to develop a single implant that continuously monitors all the chemical reactions in the body and either treats any problems or helps diagnose them. The development of a full adder digital circuit from human cells means that in the future you could carry a fully programmable computer in your body that can do anything a silicon computer can do. And, not made from silicon, but from you. The paper was titled, Programmable full Adder Computations in Communicating Three-Dimensional Cell Cultures, and was published in the journal Nature Methods. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Bees. Kit Prendergast is also known as the Bee Babette. She's a PhD student at Curtin University and a forest Scholar. This scholarship is given out to only three people each year, funded by Andrew Forrest and his wife. Kit's focus is on native bees, how they respond to urbanisation in southwest Western Australia, which is a biodiversity hotspot, and whether the introduced European honeybee is out-competing native bees. I spoke to Kit by Facebook Messenger because Skype was down, and began by asking her, what are native bees?
2: Well, when people think bee, they usually think honeybees which actually aren't native to Australia. The European honeybee Apis mellifera, whilst it occurs on pretty much every continent except Antarctica, it's not native to many places. It's been introduced and it's been introduced to Australia where it now exists in managed colonies by beekeepers and also there are feral colonies. But in Australia, we actually have an incredible diversity of native bees. There are about 2,000 species, but the thing is that there has been quite little effort dedicated to documenting and describing our native bees due to a severe shortage of taxonomists and people that have the skills to go out and collect and identify bees. So we have about 2,000, but there's definitely many that have been undescribed and are waiting to be described, sitting in museums. So there's this incredible diversity of bees that I think people should be more aware of because not only are they native to Australia, so they're part of our biotic heritage, but they are also very important pollinators of our native flora. And our native bees are actually quite different from honeybees in that honeybees, They live in big colonies where there's about 10,000 individuals per colony. There's a single reproductive female. She's a queen, and her sole job is to reproduce. And then all the daughters, they are unable to reproduce. And they have their lives dedicated to helping the queen raise her offspring, which are their daughters, and maintain the hive and forage for pollen and nectar to maintain the hive and then the males, they have one purpose in life in that all they do is mate and once they mate they die, it's actually suicidal sex. Our native bees, they're quite different, they're solitary so they don't live in big colonies so most of them are solitary anyway. And there are a couple of eusocial species, the stingless bees, also known as sugar bag bees, but they're they're a bit different as well in that they're a lot smaller than honeybees and they can't sting. But back to our the majority of bees, they're solitary. Each female can reproduce, and so there's no there's no hive, there's no colony. They live in all types of environments and they nest rather than in colonies. They have nests either in the ground or in little holes in wood and the females, they don't keep on caring for their offspring but rather once they collect the nectar and pollen, they create a little cell, put the provisions in there, lay the egg and that's the end. They don't continue to care for their offspring. And then in terms of the males, the males also they are able to mate multiple times so it's a lot better scenario for the males for them so yeah big differences in the social structure and, and behavior of honeybees and native bees.
1: And these individual native bees they sting?
2: Well most of them do except for the stingless bee group there's 11 species of stingless bees but for the native bees they do sting only the females though And that's the same with honeybees as well. You will never be stung by a male bee. The sting is exclusive to female bees. But I can also say that I've been stung by honeybees and native bees. It's, I guess, part of the job description when you're a a bee scientist. And being stung by native bees is far, far less painful than being stung by honeybees. And part of the reason of that is that when honeybees sting you, it's, Again, it's a suicidal act, so when they sting you, their sting actually dislodges from their body and lodges into your skin, but that means that part of their body is broken off, and so they die afterwards, and that has evolved as a strategy because in terms of evolution, the females, they can't reproduce, so their sole role is to help the survival of their colony, whereas with native bees, because they don't have a colony and each female can reproduce, then there's no selection pressure for them to have such a dramatic stinging attack. So when they sting you, they can survive afterwards. And that means that because they have the ability to keep stinging you, they don't dislodge all their venom in one go. So it's less painful.
1: Are people likely to see a large range of different types of native bees in their garden?
2: Well, yes. You see, I, as part of my project, I've been surveying... Bushland remnants, as well as residential gardens around southwest WA, the urban areas. And I've found that although bushland remnants are better habitat for native bees, residential gardens certainly can host many bees, anywhere from two species up to uh, about. I think the maximum was 20 species so that's an incredible diversity but the key thing is that it's what plants are present and one of the best ways for people to see native bees is to plant native flora in particular, bottle brushes and scovola which is also known as fan flowers, hiberdia, also known as snake vine and many of the native pea plants. And one of the best resources, though, is one that it's harder for people to plant, but it's crucial for them to retain them, the eucalypts that are often on verges. So in South West WA, we have Mary and Jarrah, but there are plenty of other of those large, beautiful, mass blossoming eucalyptus trees. And the native bees just love them. I can collect, you know, up to 15 species on a single tree which is incredible. So, yes, people can definitely see native bees in their gardens and I've been surveying for four months last year and so far five months this year and there has not been one survey where I've not seen a native bee in anyone's garden. So they definitely are there, but the thing is that they don't look much like honeybees and lots lots of them are much smaller than honeybees. Some even look quite wasp-like. So... The thing is to learn what the native bees look like. And then once you once you know what they look like, you start seeing them everywhere.
1: So you get ones with blue bands and ones that look like little fruit flies and ones that look like wasps and all sorts of things.
2: Yes. So one of the most common ones is the blue banded bee. That's one of my favourite ones. They, unlike most of the bees that are very small, these ones are about the size of honeybees and they're really chubby really cute. They have a goldy thorax and a yellowish facial mask. And then they've got black and blue bands on their abdomen. And they are very fast. They zip around like anything. But they are yeah, they're very common in gardens. And they like plants like geisha girl, also known by the scientific name as Durantorepens. They like agapanthus. And they quite like lantana, which is actually a weed. but They, yeah, they're quite common. And then there's ones that look wasp-like. These are the mast bees. The scientific genus is Hylaeus. And they tend to be black with yellow and white facial markings and a little yellow sort of badge on their back. And then there are ones that are even smaller. They're the Uri A bees. And, and they are about, the smallest is two millimeters long. And then they range up to about six millimeters. So they're very tiny. But mm-hmm. they are actually, Australia's most diverse subfamily. So we have all these incredible diversity of bees. And yeah, definitely most of them aren't black and yellow. So the the blue band of bee, that's black and blue and brownish. And then one of the common bees that people might see are the Mega Kylie bees. They're the leaf cutter bees and resin bees and they tend to have black bodies with white stripes on their abdomen and they often have little tufts of red hair on their head or on their bum and they're also one of the common ones that people might see and they're the ones that use bee hotels. A bee hotel is a structure that you can make to encourage bees The cavity nesting bees to nest in your garden. It's a great way to help out bees. So as I mentioned, a lot of bees they nest in little holes in wood, and these in nature are created by wood boring beetles. In urban areas, not only are there fewer trees for them to nest in, but it means that we can actually help them by providing them with extra nesting resources. And there are a number of ways to make bee hotels. One way is to, to get a block of wood
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it, then you um, drill holes in it. The preferred diameter is 3 millimetres to 8 millimetres and you can go a bit larger but to, not too much larger than that and to a depth really as far as your drill will go and you then install these blocks of wood with little holes on them under eaves or on fence posts or hanging from trees and then the native bees will nest in them and another design is getting bamboo stems and putting them in a bundle once again with diameters of about 3 millimetres to 9 millimetres and then again hanging them in locations like Uh, on tree branches and under eaves. Generally the best place is where it's quite sunny and it's not obscured by vegetation. And yeah, that's a great way to not only encourage native bees to visit your garden, but also helps them out in providing nests for them so that they can continue on in future generations. And also allows you to really get um, up close and, and see the bees in action.
1: Yeah. So not only good for the environment, but it could be good for your fruit garden, for example.
2: Oh, definitely. So um, there have been a number of studies that have found that native bees are actually superior than, um, than honeybees as pollinators. And this is not just for native plants that the native bees have co-evolved with, but also various crops. So studies overseas, for example, have found that there are various cavity nesting bees that are actually really good um, pollinators of apple and cherry and pumpkin. And then here in Australia, there have been studies that have found that the blue band of bees are really good pollinators of plants that require buzz pollination. And honeybees can't do that. So buzz pollination is refers to when a bee... Uh, vibrates the anthers, which are the male parts of a flower, at a particular frequency. And there are certain flowers that they have anthers, known as poricidal anthers, and the pollen is not released unless they are buzz pollinated. And a classic example is tomatoes. So if you've seen a tomato flower, it's got quite interesting anthers and it requires to be buzzed at a particular frequency for the pollen to be released. And our blue banner bees are really good at, good at doing that. And I can testify because I have cherry tomato plants just on my veranda and there's some blue banner bees that come and visit them. And I had just from two plants, I had over 200 cherry tomatoes. There were so many that my plants were like dragging on the ground. It's all thanks to the blue banner bees. So, yes, native bees in your garden are very good for if you're growing any, any crops, but also the native plants because pollination is vital for plant reproduction. So, yeah, native bees are really important in multiple ecosystems.
1: So people can build their own bee hotels. How else can they help with the conservation and identification of what native bees there are around?
2: Well... There are a couple of ways that you can firstly help native bees out, one way is, so there's the cavity nesting bees, but there's also ground nesting bees, and so they nest in the ground. So to help them out, and these include the blue banded bees, they're ground nesters. Uh, big thing is no fake grass, fake grass is pretty terrible for almost all organisms. And also to leave patches of bare soil in your garden and to minimise tilling. That's the tilling is turning over the soil. And if there's bees nesting in there, you can disturb their nests, so it's not a very good idea. And then also to plant the flora that the bees require to forage on. So as I mentioned, they do prefer native flora, in particular the eucalypts, the native pea plants. And various other native flowers. But there are some uh, non native flora that they do visit. So I mentioned the ones that the blue banded bees visit, but I've also noted uh, native bees visiting various daisies and also flowers of broccoli. So that's another crop plant that people tend to have in their garden. And yeah, so it's it's about planting a, a rich mix of. Uh, flowers that they like and also planting um, for each species planting planting quite a few of that that species because if you just plant one or two it's harder for them to find those plants. And then in terms of identification, well I've got a Facebook group called Bees in the Burbs in a Biodiversity Hotspot and this group not only is it about um, sharing information about native bees but also I've got a few citizen science projects set up there, and I've got three spreadsheets which are accessed by, on the group page, there's a Google Drive link that's always pinned as the first um, post on the group, and when you click on that, it opens up into a new tab, and there's three spreadsheets. One is for bee hotels and that one is for um, people worldwide, so across Australia but also elsewhere in the world. I've got a few people following me in other countries and that's for people to uh, document the occupancy of their bee hotel, so I can gather data on the best uh, diameter size and also what materials the bees prefer and um, various other aspects so that we can really optimise bee hotel design um, because whilst I do have Um, information on what bee hotels designs native bees do like. It's always best to get like as much data as I can and get this sort of really big data set. Then the other two spreadsheets they are for people in WA to record bees when they see them in residential areas and also in bushland areas and there's a number of columns that have headings and they ask you to input data. So, for example, about how many flowers there are in your garden, or how big your garden is, and um, the date of the bee sighting. So I can get an idea of when bees are most active. I mean, I'm getting all this data from my own personal surveys, but it's always good to get extra data and also just encourage people to just get out there and see as many bees as they can. And then, I mean. Whilst those projects are WA-based, except for the bee hotel one, anyone can join my Facebook group page and post photos of bees that they see, and I can ID them at least to genus. I mean, IDing bees to species is notoriously difficult because the features that distinguish one species from another are usually like microscopic, so you have to look under the microscope, and it's like um, the distribution of hairs on the thorax or like tiny indentations on their face. So very difficult unless you've actually got a physical specimen, but I can ID bees to the genus at least and that will help people get a better understanding of the diversity of bees and and um, help them ID bees themselves and on my Facebook group page I also have under the photos section I've got some albums and each album is for each major bee group and I've got a description of their distinguishing features and then I've also got an album for insects mistaken for bees because there are quite a few bees that look like for as you mentioned flies or wasps and then there are quite a few insects like flies and wasps that do look quite a bit like bees so I've got the distinguishing features of each group so that people can um, learn what's a bee and what's not a bee.
1: Oh and I know there's a lot of people as a hobby have native beehives, would they be the sugar bag bees?
2: Yes. So those are the stingless bees, also known as sugar bag bees. And they are the only colonial bees in Australia. There's 11 species. The most common is Tetragonula carbonaria. And they are very unlike honeybees in their appearance in that they are very small and black and they live in colonies, but their hives, they rather than the comb structure of honeybees, they actually make these amazing spiral hives, and they make honey as well, unlike most other native bees, and a much smaller amount. I've never tried their honey. I'd like to. It's apparently very um, citrusy, so quite a different, different taste than the honeybee honey, and it's a uh, a great opportunity for people to get more in touch with our native bees. Unfortunately, in Southwest WA, we can't have the sugar bag bees because there are none that are native, particularly to this area, which I think is a great tragedy because yeah, these, these sugar bag bees are very amazing and they have great ecologies and they don't sting. So that's a you know, great benefit of keeping them over honeybees. So they're really taking off, which is is great to hear. We really need to raise awareness about our native bees because there are so many times that I say I'm studying native bees and then people start talking to me about honey and honey bees, which whilst the honey bee industry is important in Australia, our native bees, they are so critical to the functioning of our ecosystems. And there's such an amazing diversity of native bees and once you start learning about them and uh, seeing them, you, you're you amazed at like the, the incredible diversity of bees there are and their appearance, their colours and their behaviours and yeah, they really are so important for our ecosystems and there's many ways that we can help out our native bees and I'd encourage everyone to go out there and, and try and document our native bees and see if you can see any and make a bee hotel and see if you can have them start checking in at your garden.
1: Well, Kit Prendergast, thank you very much. Thank you. That was the Bee Bay Bet, Kit Prendergast, talking about bee hotels and native Australian bees. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show so that I can make more episodes. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Sound check and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including... 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Please follow the links on the website to vote for Diffusion in the Australian Podcast Awards. You can subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate.